All right, those are the strains of Cole Porter's Immortal Begin the Begin, which was made a big hit in 1937 by Artie Shaw. Artie Shaw passed away a couple of days ago, and uh, I thought he would be a nice mood setter for part uh, three, segment three in today's program. We're going to take another look back at Mr. Howard Hughes. We talked about a couple weeks ago the movie The Aviator, and we'll be joined shortly by our media correspondent, Gary Chu, to talk about the Hollywood aspect of, of Howard Hughes, particularly the movie, after which we'll be joined by investigative journalist Lisa Pease to talk about uh, what happened to Hughes after the movie ends. Uh, but I thought it might be worth uh, saying a few words about Mr. Shaw. I would recommend you go to the um, the NPR website. They have an interview with, uh, with Artie Shaw. They also talk about one of his big hits, which was Stardust. He was playing the... Uh, the clarinet, I believe, on one of the one of the big selling versions of Stardust, and that was included in the NPR Top 100. A couple of weeks back, we we uh, played another one of those selections, which was Bobby Darin's "Beyond the Sea," which is uh, just 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 a great piece of music. I'm glad we closed with it. I wish that the movie uh, Be- "Beyond the Sea" lived up to uh, to the song. It's it's pretty so-so, but that's a subject for another day. Let's go back to Artie Shaw, Ava Gardner, and. Um, and Howard Hughes, which is how we link Artie Shaw in our clever way to Howard Hughes, because Ava Gardner was married to Artie Shaw. She was um, his a third wife, I think, of eight, after after she was Mickey Rooney's first of eight, and I think uh, Frank Sinatra's second of, I don't know how many Frank Sinatra's had. Ava Gardner married uh, married to interesting people, and uh, she was for a while the... The love interest of Mr. Howard Hughes. She successfully resisted Howard Hughes' advances, uh, which is portrayed in the movie The Aviator. Anyway, I've, I've been reading uh, Ava Gardner, My Story, which has been sitting gathering dust on my shelf for years. But in the wake of seeing this movie, I pulled it down. It's got some great anecdotes in it, which we will hopefully um, insert into this segment. And at this point, it might be the time to go to our special media correspondent to talk about The Aviator, Mr. Gary Chu. Gary, are you there? Hey, Doug. How are you? I'm well. Uh, Great. Let, let's talk about let's talk about the Aviator in Hollywood. Uh, I liked it pretty well. This movie turned out to be just about what I thought it would be. Uh, it was too long. Howard Hughes's life, as you well know, lasted a long time. It was very complex, and he was into a lot of stuff all through his life in many ways. And to cover his life, actually, you're going to have to have uh, maybe uh, two or three movies. We felt the same way that we're actually coming back to the subject of Howard Hughes because I think a lot of our younger listeners don't know anything about him, and and this movie is not is is a good start. But he's a guy that if you want to study 20th century uh, uh, politics, history, aviation, you know Hollywood, you know fill in the blank, Howard Hughes is going to surface sooner or later. Oh sure, and what's interesting, and I was glad you wanted to talk to me about this because it, now I can use this after uh, over 50 years. Uh, when I was 10 years old, that gives my, my, my age away when I tell you all this, <laughs> I went on a vacation in the summertime of 1947. My mother and dad and I went to Long Beach to visit my dad's brother, and we were there for a couple of weeks. And while we were out tooling around one day, we got into this terrible jam, and there was this gigantic airplane with no wings being pulled down the street that, you know, and I looked up, and it said something about the outlaw. Howard Hughes is the outlaw with Jane Russell on it. I actually saw the Spruce Goose being moved from Culver City to Long Beach by accident. Wow. He actually did, as long as he had a giant moving billboard getting attention, why not put an advertisement on the side? Of course. That's how I remember it. You know, I said, 
Howard, who is Howard Hughes? And then I always remember my dad telling a joke to friends. He says, I went to see the outlaw four times because I was sure that Jane Russell's blouse was going to fall when she was fall down when she was riding that horse. And I always remember that as a sort of a blue joke my father told when I was a little boy. So Gary, you you were a witness to history there, the the, the, the actual the actual airplane that was And I noticed that they were very, very obscure about the actual flight of the plane in the film. They didn't show you that it didn't fly very much. Yeah. Is that true? Well, you, George, you know Merritt, that. George Merritt on our show uh, said that actually they, they probably had it fly a little higher than it actually flew. And, and mm-hmm. in reality, it, mm-hmm. it barely got out of ground effect, which is mm-hmm. probably only 20 feet uh, up. The two the things that I did like about the movie, and I can say to them for you quickly, is I really like Kate Blanchett as Hepburn. And I know there's some people who probably didn't because she sort of, par- she didn't parody her, she just sort of copied her. She doesn't look much like Hepburn, but you know it was believable. I, th- I agree. I thought she was great. I thought she was. I thought she was the best thing in the movie, personally. Yeah. Along with Alec uh, Baldwin and Alan Alda, the, those are the three people I like best in it. Ava Gardner's role was not so well written into the story, but I don't know that much about it. You know. Anyway, uh, I really liked the the golf scene with uh, where Hepburn beats Hughes. You know, and she's hitting the ball better and putting and all that. And she's got all these... That's sort of her opening scene in the film. Yeah. And the other scene that I like was the scene at the Hepburn lunch table when he gets uh, hacked off uh, with Mrs. Hepburn giving him hell. Yeah. You know, the haughty left-winger uh, right. socialites of Connecticut. I thought that was... Uh, th- those two scenes were very good. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to put down Leonard, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't think he didn't do a bad job. I think he should get an E plus for effort. He really he did. He worked hard at it, but his gravitas wasn't there for me. I, yeah. I can't think of him and Hughes together, sort of. You know, Hughes was kind of a lank, gaunt-looking guy, and I always remember him having a mustache and wearing a felt hat. Yeah, he's six three, hundred and fifty pounds. <clears throat> I think they sort of had him looking more like that toward the end of the film. You know, uh, also on the other part of the movie, I didn't like personally was the the dwelling upon his mental condition, which I suppose is a very important, integral part of his life, but it was, it was, it was very unsettling for me to see that. I didn't enjoy it at all. Well, let me, let me actually let me take a minute to quote from this Ava Gardner book, which I'm thumbing through as we're talking here, Gary. Okay. Ava Gardner on Howard Hughes. His taste in food was bizarre to the point of absurdity. I never saw him eat anything for dinner but a steak, green peas, perhaps a few potatoes and a small salad, followed by ice cream topped with caramel sauce. Night after night, year after year. And something else didn't come up in the movie. I think the movie was actually much kinder to the Hughes. I, I read Noah Dietrich's bio of him. He actually was a much more thoughtless person. He doesn't come across like a very thoughtful person in the movie, but Arlene Dahl had a little comment in this Ava Gardner. She had a little insert, a little chapter of her own here that I thought was pretty funny. I should quote from her. She wrote, As for Howard Hughes, the main thing that threw her off, referring to Ava, and me too, was his body odor. Howard never bathed. He never used a deodorant, and I'm sure he never cleaned his clothes. They were always dirty, and he never bothered to change. I remember standing next to him at Ciro's one night, and I smelled him before I knew who it was. I turned around and saw his shirt. He had dirt on the collar and around his neck, and I had to excuse myself. Ava couldn't get past the body odor, and neither could I. We laughed about that. Doug, if you had a billion dollars... You could wear whatever you wanted to, too. Well, <laughs> apparently his B.O. was what failed to allow him to conquer the celebrated Ava Gardner, so I think it does pay to use a little bit of soap now and again. <laughs> you know, there was one thing, uh, maybe you can tell me a little bit on the veracity of this, I'm not sure, 
And that is uh, the little bit in the script where in the film it shows him uh, uh, coercing the publicist to not print pictures of the married Spencer Tracy with Catherine Hepburn. That scene with uh, William Defoe. I don't know whether that's true or not. I have to think that there must be some truth in it, but I'm not sure it might have been pumped up a little bit to kind of balance out the other parts of his personality, because I thought that was quite a nice thing for him to do. He did actually do nice things for people, although Dietrich points out it was always with an end. He always wanted to impress somebody with the fact that he was being nice. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it, was yeah. never, it was never, ever, ever out of truly the goodness of his heart. But anyway, you think it's an Oscar contender? It probably is because Martin Scorsese uh, needs to have an Oscar. <laughs> right. And he has been coming across right. to Hollywood after his really three good movies. Those are Goodfellas and uh, uh, Raging Bull and one other. He's done some great films and never has one a, a yeah. directorial. Yeah, uh, and I think that he's come across enough for Hollywood, and if they sell enough tickets on this, he might get it this time, but I don't think it's worth even Oscar, personally. I, I am was have been late getting to see a film that's been out here in, two, in 2004 that's probably going to be in some kind of contention. It's being mentioned a lot. The reviews have been raving over it. All critics are crazy about this movie, and that is Sideways. Okay. And I just saw it, and I saw it late, I, and, and everyone else has been telling me, don't miss this movie. Okay. Uh, and I'm telling you, Doug, don't miss this movie. Well, either. we're out of time, but I guess that means we're going to have to bring you back, and you're going to talk about Sideways in a future show. Gary, thanks so much. My pleasure. All right. You know, uh, there was one story I should have mentioned with Gary that apparently on the um, on the night they were premiering The Outlaw, which in the movie they show about uh, Hughes' obsession with uh, showing Jane Russell's bosom to its best advantage, apparently during one of the scenes, interminable scenes where she's leaning over to show her assets to best advantage, some wag in the front row apparently brought down the house by shouting out, Bombs away! I think the movie covers the Hollywood aspect reasonably well. And uh, so, again, we recommend that you go see it. But, you know, we're going to devote this third segment today pretty much to Howard Hughes because there's so much more to the man. Uh, So we've invited our good friend, investigative journalist, former editor of Probe magazine, Lisa Pease, to come back and talk about what is perhaps the most interesting aspect about Hughes, what happened to him after the movie stops. Let's go now to Los Angeles. Lisa. Hey. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Always good to be on your show. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, I, I, I thought you'd be the go-to person for this because, you know, Hughes is just, he's got a finger in every pie after, you know, you, the scenes you see in the movie, uh, you know, show him going a little bonkers in the late 40s, but his story gets really interested in the 50s, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, it gets, it gets real twisted in the 60s, too. In the 50s, he kind of took over our RKO movie studios and almost ran it into the ground. No, he, not almost. Well, <laughs> he pretty much ran entirely into the ground. Had to sell it for dirt cheap in the end. Right. Uh, but to me, the most interesting part starts when he moves to Las Vegas, and he ensconces himself in the top floor of the Desert Inn and walls himself off from all but a few people. And it's around that time in the late 50s, he was getting into developing, actually, I guess it was the end of the 40s, like 1949, he was starting to develop aircraft for the Army and started, you know, meeting people from the CIA who were very interested in the fact that Hughes controlled the the drill bit used worldwide to drill for oil. Right. A great cover for intelligence operations. Exactly. And not only that, oil being such an important resource on this planet, 
planet. You know, if anybody discovered it, the CIA would be the first to know about it because they'd know who bought the drill bit and where they were drilling and what they were finding. He's also a man running an international uh, set of airlines with airplanes going everywhere. So he's like, he's like a, you know, he's good yeah. on both counts. He's like a, he's like a magic box for the CIA. Right, and, and plus, plus being, I guess, is, being eccentric and reclusive is right. like, you know, it's like the trifecta. Exactly. And so early on, curiously enough. Robert Mayhew joins the staff of uh, Howard Hughes, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s. He originally is hired to do some private investigating for him to help arrange the trip to um, Las Vegas. In, in the movie, you see the man who's his, uh, Howard Hughes' right-hand man from 1925 to like 1956, 57. Noah Dietrich was basically his alter ego. Well, Dietrich got fed up in about 56 and more or less just said, that's it, I can't keep doing this, and left at which point he needed another right-hand man to be his interface with the public, and it became Bob Mayhew. And Bob Mayhew, if your listeners don't know, was the guy at the CIA, or, you know, the CIA asset, we should say, because he wasn't formally working for the CIA. He was very informally working for the CIA. He was the man in charge of the Castro assassination plots. He was yeah. working with mobster Johnny Roselli, and he had previously worked with the CIA to set up porno films of Sukarno, supposedly having sex with a blonde Soviet stewardess who was really an agent, you know, all of that completely fictitious and made up uh, with the help, by the way, of the LAPD. <laughs> so yeah. Mayhew had a kind of a sordid and twisted and very interesting history. Certainly a guy to go to for unusual job requests. Exactly. Yeah, yeah Mayhew had for a while run his own agency, which he literally had called Mission Impossible, and that was frankly <laughs> the one the series, the TV series, was based on was Mayhew's own private organization. Uh, they're the can-do guys. So, yeah, so Mayhew, you know, helps get, uh, you know, Hughes settled in Las Vegas. Hughes gives tacit approval for Mayhew to run around and try and kill Castro, you know, while on his payroll. And uh, the the relationship between Hughes and the CIA kind of grows in secret. There's also this huge Mormon faction that starts to take over the Hughes organization. Yeah, Hughes apparently respected Mormons. They don't they don't run around with women. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They're reliable people. And pretty soon he had like a Mormon palace guard. Exactly. Although uh, I'm not sure any of those things he said are true. They don't <laughs> smoke. They don't drink. Maybe not in front of Hughes. But uh, <laughs> well, his his Mormons didn't apparently. Mormon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, he he did have you know. Very strict rules of behavior. I mean, you know, anybody who saw the film will know it gets much worse in later life. You know, you are to hold the milk at this particular angle. Right. You know, oh, his, his instructions were quite wild. Come 1970, Mayhew finds himself suddenly on the outs. And this just on the tail of Mayhew having tried to give, or depending on who you listen to, successfully given, then-President Richard Nixon a million-dollar bribe. It's definitely documented that they gave him a $100,000 bribe right. for B.B. Rebozo. There's one man's testimony that he absolutely gave him, you know, the million dollars, and that was John Meyer, who I actually got, got to meet. He lived at the time up in Vancouver. I'm not sure if he's still there. Okay. Uh, but he had worked directly with Hughes. It was interesting because although Mayhew never actually got to see Hughes face-to-face, -face, Meyer did. Meyer was kind of... How do I want to say Hughes's pet social projects guy? You know, yeah. Whereas Mayhew was like the big financial business operations guy. Well, I've also got another book in front of me, Citizen Hughes. Michael Drosnan talks about this. Um, you know, there's so many aspects about Hughes. He he got a check, the largest check ever written to any individual, five hundred million dollars, which was, it was sort of ironic because he sold his TWA stock, which he didn't want to, but he lost control. 
And when he wound up selling it, it was like it had appreciated immensely, and he was all of a sudden had a half a billion dollars in cash. <laughs> but this book, Citizen Hughes, is allegedly a book about um, documents stolen in a burglary in 1974 from Hughes's office where they took the actual memos that he was writing to Bob Mayhew to run his empire, the actual, uh, you know, notes that went back and forth. Yeah, Hughes was famous for writing on big yellow legal tablets because, of course, this was before the days of, you know, personal computers and uh, famous for his meticulous handwriting, never misspelled a word. I mean, you know, everything about him was obsessive-compulsive. Right. Uh, but, yeah, there, he had a studio not far from where I live now, in fact, a little area uh, called Romaine Street. Uh, it's kind of in the Hollywood area. Have you seen the building, by the way? Yeah, I actually used to drive by there all the time. Is I it just a little nondescript building? It is, it's kind of a nondescript gray warehouse-type building uh-huh. you know, with a security fence. It looks very much like a lot of the TV and movie studio properties. But at any rate, yeah, so one night, <laughs> these guys break in and make off with all the Hughes documents. And there's been a lot of speculation over the years, who stole the documents, why were they stolen, and even worse, why did no one want to pay to get them back? Because that's the kind of the funny part, Yes, is that it- after these amazingly important documents, supposedly, were stolen, they were offered back to the Hughes Corporation for a fairly small price, about $100,000. Yeah. And uh, and the Hughes company never paid to get the documents back, which raised the speculation that the Hughes company itself, or possibly the CIA, organized the stealing of the documents, because at that time they had a bunch of lawsuits and were under investigation, and the whole Watergate scandal you know, was in deep investigation. Yeah, we should turn time. the clock back for our listeners. This is like June 74. Nixon's got about two months left in his presidency. He's completely under siege. They're looking into all kinds of... Uh, of, of government monkey business, and again and again and again, Howard Hughes' name keeps surfacing. There are some who make the case that the whole reason for the Watergate break-in, um, the target of the Watergate break-in was Larry O'Brien. Larry O'Brien had used to work for Robert Kennedy, but after Robert Kennedy was killed, Howard Hughes moved very quickly after the assassination. He says, this is our big moment. We can buy a whole political organization on the cheap. Yeah. And they're all together, and they all know each other. And they're leaderless, and they have no one to go to, and it'll be a long time before Teddy runs. Let's get him now. So he hired all the top uh, Kennedy aides, the chief one being Larry O'Brien. Larry O'Brien had worked for the Hughes Corporation for a while. And then he became the head of the Democratic National Committee. And when the Watergate burglars broke in, they broke in specifically to tap Larry O'Brien. Now, probably unbeknownst to Nixon when he ordered that, if, if you believe that part of the story. I don't believe he did, but go ahead. Yeah, well, his top lieutenant, Haldeman, actually believed that Nixon did order to break in, but I don't think Nixon had a clue what he was getting into, because what it seemed to be is the CIA was very determined not to have Nixon find out what they were doing with Larry O'Brien and the Hughes Corporation. And so, curiously enough, the bugs that were planted on Larry O'Brien's phone never worked. Um, and these are the top CIA guys. One of them taught, you know, counterintelligence bugging for 40 years and was head of the security research section. If anybody knew how to plant a working bug, this guy did. So the fact that the bug never worked, of course, does indicate it deliberately never worked. Yeah, you know, Frank Sturgis, one of the burglars, later claimed that they were going in for the Hughes stuff. Right, which, which makes a lot of sense. And that's what John Meyer said when I talked to him. He's, he really believed, you know, that Nixon was terrified that Larry O'Brien, one, knew about the million-dollar payoff, and two, was going to expose it. And so he wanted to find out what he knew, 
you know, before it came out so he could, you know, do damage control. You know, my, my understanding also is that uh, Larry O'Brien did, did pay off for Hughes because he managed to lobby people. In 53, 54, Hughes transfers the Hughes Aircraft Company into a medical foundation. <laughs> so, so that medical foundation that gave out less than like a million dollars in, in medical research credit. Right, right. And and Larry O'Brien, they were going to make that illegal, and O'Brien managed to make that retroactively legal as long as it was a medical foundation that was governing governing a business. And by yeah. the 50s, Hughes Electronics becomes becomes gigantic, and the communication satellites, all of our secret spy satellites, are basically Hughes Electronics. Exactly. Again, there's there's the, the there's the spy agency of the U.S. and Howard Hughes. Where does one begin? Where does the other end? Exactly. And so, if it wasn't about the O'Brien bribe that people broke into the Romaine Street, the other thing that people suspect it was all about was the Glomar Explorer. This was this huge, huge project. Just like he'd built, built the Hercules or the Spruce Goose yeah. for the Air Force, he built this huge mining ship that was supposed to go drill for oil across the beds of the ocean and look for minerals in the ocean. It, could, it had a drill that could drill five miles down into the ocean floor. And it had a three-mile cable. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just an astonishing thing. I think it cost $400 million to build. I've, I've been right up to that ship, by the way. It used to be, used to be docked down by the Benicia Bridge. Yeah, and trips yeah. To the Bay Area. I've gone right up to it and, and looked at it. It's got keep-away signs everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But uh, it's a bizarre-looking ship, to be sure. But unbeknownst at the time of its construction, which was about 1970, uh, one of its main purposes for being built was actually to retrieve a downed nuclear submarine. The CIA entered a secret deal with Hughes to, to you know, pull this Soviet submarine and its code books and its nuclear missiles, you know, off the ocean floor near Hawaii where it had crashed, and that was one of the big reasons for the Glomar Explorer having been built. And that's the part they wanted to keep secret. Yeah, and the story is they didn't get the sub. Do you believe that? Well, the story is, yeah, that the sub broke up. No, we just, the, we lost it. Why did you we know, had and it? And the part with the missiles in the code book sunk, but they were away. able to retrieve it. Now, if you believe that, you know, I got some land here to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to me, one of the most interesting parts come out of that story, though, is that right after that um, after the Romaine Street burglary, one of the documents was about the Glomar Explorer, and it made it to the Los Angeles Times, and they started printing a story about it. The CIA found out about it and instantly called the owner of the L.A. Times, who suggested they talk to the editor of the L.A. Times, and the editor agreed to move the story off the front page and bury it you know, in the back pages, and then also never to report on it again. They didn't just want to make the story disappear. That's right. almost too obvious. Right. But they moved the story off the front page after the first few issues were printed, and uh, and then they didn't. They they shut it down. And then Cy Hirsch at the New York Times got word of it. He wanted to write a story. The CIA calls the New York Times. They agree to kill the story. And this happened with Parade, and it happened with the Washington Post. Hmm. So all of them had this kind of pact that actually lasted a year. And so all the media just agreed to cover up for the CIA. Now, that should tell you a lot about the kind of media we have in this country. And finally, it got to the point where everybody started to think everybody else was going to break the story first. And Jack Anderson, who's had kind of an interesting on-off sort of relationship with the CIA, was the one who finally broke the story, and then everybody else rapidly followed with their own version of it. Uh, It was called Operation Jennifer. And that's one of the things. Now, I also met a covert operator who told me there's yet a third part of the story, which might be why the CIA wanted so badly to keep it out of the press. Okay. It wasn't only that we were retrieving nuclear missiles. 
this man claimed this, the Glomar Explorer was also planting nuclear missiles across the ocean as part of its job. I have no way to verify that. <laughs> I hope that's wrong. I hope that's wrong, too. And, you know, it's a weird world. Anything's possible. The guy could have been making it up, but he's told me other stuff that proved absolutely true. So, Well, know. Lisa, we are unfortunately <laughs> out of time. I, we could go, I, honest to God, I, I, I really think if you really wanted to cover this guy adequately... Uh, you would probably have to do about five or ten full shows because he's just an amazing guy. But if we were going to send somebody to one source, do you have any one or two sources you'd send people to, to to learn more about Howard Hughes? Well, I would definitely say check out, believe it or not, the Playboy article. Yeah. <laughs> it was an excellent Playboy article that ran back in 1976, okay. September issue, and it's called The Puppet and the Puppet Masters, Howard Hughes and the CIA, and uh, written by two wonderful writers. It's called Hughes Nixon and the CIA, the Watergate Conspiracy, Woodward and Bernstein missed. <laughs> All right. Well, I I also would recommend about that same era. There's a hilarious, the most the funniest article ever about Howard Hughes, written by a man who was one of his personal aides, called "I Caught Flies for Howard Hughes." <laughs> so I guess we send people back to the 1976 Playboy archives. They'll get two great articles. I was also going to say the author of that article did recommend um, the Drosnin book, believe it or not, Citizen Hughes, as yeah. the best book he'd read on the case. It's around. I, I have a copy in my hand right now. It's in used bookstores. Um, for more reading on it, uh, get Michael Drosnin's uh, Citizen Hughes. All right. Lisa, it's always a pleasure. Come come again and talk about some more of spy stuff. Uh, will do. Okay. <laughs> Take care. I wish we had more time, but we don't. Lisa Pease was the editor, along with Jim Diogenio, of the investigative magazine Probe, which ran for many years and had some wonderful articles about things like Howard Hughes. Our thanks also to Gary Chu and the fabulous PBS chef Martin Yan, whose program Quick and Easy will be coming to uh, to TV stations near you. This was a fun show. We'll see you again next Thursday at five o'clock. I'm not sure who our guest is going to be. We've got a couple good ones. We're not going to. I'm not going to tip my hand. So you'll just have to tune in, and and see. And I can't think of a better way to end this show than the way we began this segment with the strains of the late great Artie Shaw doing his rendition of an American classic, Stardust. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your faithful host, Douglas Everett, and uh, stay tuned now for Todd. We'll see you next Thursday.